This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm Amit Ghosh, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. The topic for today's discussion is critical care issues arising in COVID-19 infections. Today, we are joined in by Dr. Alice Gallo. She's a consultant in medicine and assistant professor of critical care. She's at the forefront of managing all the critical care issues. Welcome, Dr. Gallo. Thank you so much for having me. What are the types of complications in hospitalized COVID-19 patients who end up in the ICU and critical care? So we have seen we have seen a lot of these patients with severe lung injury, meaning their oxygen levels are very low. We have also seen that these patients develop blood clots more frequently than our other critical ill patients, even though blood clot prevalence in, in critical illness is about 25%, meaning 25% of patients who need critical care will likely develop some type of blood clot. Uh, we have also been seeing that these patients develop some kind of heart injury, probably related either to the virus going into the muscle of the heart or uh, lack of oxygen that causes cardiac injury. And we have also seen these patients having renal insufficiency, again, either from the virus infecting the kidneys itself or from lack of oxygen for a few days before the patients come to the hospital. So Dr. Gallo, what is the threshold of intubation and ventilation management in these patients? We have been told that because of the hypoxia, there's a low threshold for intubation. Uh, would you like all of them to go through a non-invasive ventilation to start with and then go into ventilator therapy or there are clear-cut indications of patients to be in either area that is non-invasive and intubation right away? That's an excellent question. So at the beginning of the pandemic, we had some colleagues recommending everybody to be intubated, intubated early to prevent spread of the disease. We have since noticed, and again, caveat that this virus is five months old, but we have already noticed that individualizing intubation is the best approach. So if patients are not breathing too fast, so uh, normal respiratory rate is about no more than 16. And if patients are breathing much faster than that, then maybe early intubation will be best to prevent self-induced lung injury, which happens when we breathe too fast, too, too shallow, and our oxygen levels are too low. Uh, low oxygen levels for someone who's not sick is below 88. Um, and we are seeing these patients coming in with oxygen levels in like the, the high 70s, low 80s. But I would still stick to my um, opinion that individualized uh, approach to these patients is still the best approach, meaning not, not a problem to try non-invasive in these patients, but then if they continue to breathe fast, if their oxygen levels don't pick up quickly, and by quickly I mean 45 to 90 minutes, then those are the patients you want to intubate. You don't want to sit on them because their self-induced lung injury will increase. So we've heard a lot about the different kinds of ventilation approaches to these patients. Can you describe in a typical patient with COVID-19, what kind of ventilatory parameters that you're going to choose? invasive ventilation. Yeah, That's uh, good knowledge that we have based on good evidence uh, from giants in critical care that 
low tidal volumes, meaning uh, limiting how much patients can breathe in terms of how many milliliters they can breathe in a minute, plus keeping the pressure of the lungs low, it's very protective for the lungs. So these patients, we do what we call a protective lung ventilation strategy, meaning that we don't allow them to breathe more than six cc's per their weight. And we also um, keep their pressures inside the lungs and around the lungs uh, very low. You also mentioned about, uh, we talked about the prone ventilation. And I would like to have your opinion about the different kinds of prone ventilation which you can have in patients who have who are on non-invasive ventilation as well as patients who are intubated. Yeah, I need to, I need to make a disclaimer on that one because I'm a big fan of proning and I believe it works. It makes physiological sense in my head. So I want to put that disclaimer out there for, for our listeners. But uh, we have in the critical care literature of patients with that, again, published way before COVID, so patients with other infections than COVID, we already know that non-invasive proning is safe to do and it works to improve oxygenation. So patients on nasal cannulas, high-flow nasal cannulas, BiPAP, CPAP, they do benefit from proning uh, and it's safe to do. But again, this is literature from other lung infections. It's not from COVID. This came out before COVID got here. And for patients on invasive mechanical ventilation, we also know that proning works if we do it early um, in the course of the disease. So ideally, we want to identify patients who will benefit from proning, and I'll go into that in one minute, early within four, six hours and prone them early. And once we prone them, we leave them prone ideally for 16 hours. And um, the parameters that I'm talking about is we have several ways of measuring if the, if the breathing sacs, the alveoli, still can be open a little bit more with proning position. So we usually measure that on the machine, on the mechanical ventilation machine before putting them on proning. If we see that there's a certain amount that we look for of lungs that we can still open, those are the patients that we're going to try prone. If we don't see that, then that's when we call our ECMO colleagues early. And ECMO means extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. And that will mean that we would completely take over oxygenation with the third machine that will let the lungs rest. But as I understand from you, there could be patients who are coming with COVID-19 illness who could be in critical care and spend their entire duration being on a non-invasive ventilatory mode. Is that correct in thinking? Yes, that is correct thinking. We have patients, we have had patients that even with the support provided by um, high flow nasal cannulas, nasal cannulas and BiPAP and CPAP, they did better and they got out of the ICU in a couple of days without mechanical ventilation. We've seen that. Is it unique for COVID-19 that something unique has been done as opposed to any other patient in the ICU or the same processes we follow for every patient in ICU works for a patient with COVID-19? There's a, that's a, that's a fantastic question. So um, I'm going to answer in part. One of the things that we already know about COVID is that COVID is highly contagious. So for PPE, we are all in full PPE waiting for the patients, meaning we have an N95, a face shield, 
a disposable gown and gloves as healthcare workers, as clinicians, that's what we have on when we are waiting for those patients. For some of us who cannot wear an N95 because, the, because of, the, of the shape of their face, then we have a pepper hood with a motor to generate negative pressure individually. And all of, all of the healthcare workers that are gonna be taking care of that patient um, have the same amount of protection. The other thing you asked me was if that's different from any other patient. It is different than any other patient because most of our um, infectious diseases that bring patients to the ICU are not as infective and are not as contagious as COVID. So for someone who comes in with a regular pneumonia, for example, or a regular COPD exacerbation, we don't have all of the PPE. We just have a regular surgical mask for the entire healthcare team. And then the changes for, for seeing those patients, Dr. Oakler is our medical director in the, in the medical ICU. And he uh, brought this, this technology called um, InTouch. And we have a um, kind of like, looks like an iPad in the room. And we have a computer outside of the room that we can um, log in to, to the iPad inside of each patient room. And we can do full physical exams with the help of, of someone inside of the room. We can listen to their heart. We can listen to their lungs. And we can phys like do physical exam that we can see everything from this in-touch technology. Another, another important part of this technology is that we have we can arrange for Zoom calls like the one we have right now for patients, family members to call in and talk to them. So that has been helping us to avoid a very common thing in the ICU, which is delirium for our patients. Medication monitoring, it can be done remotely, but changes of medication dosage, somebody has to go there physically or it can also be done remotely. So there are there are some some institutions around the country that are doing um, the IV pulse, uh, staying outside of the room. We are able to do that, but so far we have not needed to do that. And we are also able, again, Dr. Oakler and Steve Hollitz, our superstar respiratory therapist, they put together this technology also that we can leave the mechanical ventilator inside of the room, but bring the screen to outside of the room where we can uh, make adjustments without having to don full PPE and go into the room. So most of the time when you're receiving a patient, uh, if they're in critical shape, they probably already have an endotracheal tube, or you might feel that you might have to change it or put a new one or do it all by yourself. So is your prevention, the aerosolization prevention with PPE, is that good enough or is there some on top of that you during this high risk procedures you absolutely do some steps follow one two three four guidelines mm -hmm. kind of thing so the procedure itself is the same but what i would say that we've changed is that we are trying to keep in the room the least amount number of healthcare workers to do it safely and obviously everybody in full PPE, right? In full modified droplet precautions PPE. And also the uh, COVID has made a lot of us very innovative. Like you brought up the best innovative ideas in a lot of our colleagues. So there are several tools being developed and being studied, like an intubation box, for example, that you put this acrylic box on top of the patient and there are small cuts that you can put your hands in and your laryngoscope inside to intubate patients, reducing 
the aerosolization um, of COVID during those times. But I would say that personally, what I've done is try to decrease the number of healthcare workers in the room needed to do the procedure safely and everybody with full PPE and come up with a plan that will require the least amount of steps to perform the procedure safely. Mm -hmm. So we've heard about a lot of, and most of the patients have some comorbid illnesses. They might have COPD um, underlying. And we've heard about the steroid use for COVID patients with uh, lung injury and hypoxia. Is it a one-time dose? Is it don't give it? Or is it something that we give it to COPD patients with exacerbation? What is the going, the evidence keeps changing in critical care. What are we doing at the present moment in the critical care situation? The evidence keeps changing. Uh, what we're doing is we have a couple of studies going on. So if the patients qualify for those studies that include steroids, we are trying to enroll the most number of patients that we can if they fit in the studies. Uh, personally, I would say that the evidence we have for steroids, it's not ready for prime time, has not been re peer reviewed in the most conscientious way that would not potentially harm patients because we know for other viral causes for ARDS, such as H1N1, steroids actually harm. So personally, I say that the steroids for all in COVID is not ready for prime time yet. I always try to include patients on clinical trials and I, and I believe my colleagues in general are doing the same. And I would say that if someone has other reasons to need steroids, like you said, if, they, if COVID exacerbated their COPD, then obviously, um, then they would receive steroids because we know that steroids help in COPD exacerbations. When the patient is in ICU, there's a series of labs that we do, but you already mentioned in patients with COVID, we're checking D-dimer on a daily basis probably. And I've also heard about ferritin thrown in in the mix. Yeah. Are there yep. any other unique tests that you do? Because COVID, we know, can cause all kinds of blood abnormalities, leukopenia, hepatic injury. What are the kinds of routine tests that you're doing on patients in ICU with COVID-19 illnesses? That, that's an excellent question. So uh, we, already, so we already mentioned the D-dimer because these patients are, we have, we've seen that they are prone to blood clots. But I would also like to... Um, take this opportunity to educate people that D-dimer has been one of the uh, markers of critical illness and severity since the 80s. So that's not something new, but we have noticed that in COVID patients, the levels are way higher than what we've seen before just from regular sepsis, for example, bacterial sepsis. We've also been doing CRP and C-reactive protein and interleukin-6 because we, we've heard from our colleagues in China and Italy early on that these patients developed a very high inflammatory response to COVID. So we are monitoring those. And some of the clinical trials are, are also monitoring and using those for enrollment. And like you mentioned, uh, the, leukopenia, the lymphopenia, sorry, lymphopenia. Patients with infections, we always get um, CBCs every day. So we always check their blood counts every day. So that's not new for COVID, but we have been doing. Another thing that we do also um, probably more than ever in the critical um, care world is bedside ultrasounds to look for the heart function, to look for, for fluid in parts of the body that shouldn't be there, such as fluid around the lungs, fluid around the heart. 
So we probably have been doing those more often uh, than we normally do, I would say. So when I'm looking at the X-ray, CT and clinically examining, I know about the COVID pneumonia and all the lung space issues. Have you ever seen any other thing like pleural disease, like pleural effusion <clears throat> or pleural infarctions or pleural rubs and any other uh, areas of lung being involved other than just airspace pneumonias? So we've seen a couple of patients in their late phase of disease, kind of like second week of the disease that have small pleural effusions. But I would not be able to tell you if it's because of COVID or is because of the lung injury that COVID caused. Um, I don't. I don't believe we have enough data to say COVID causes or not or doesn't cause pleurifusions and things like that. The patients that I'm that I'm thinking about were patients that were intubated for a while that had, had very severe lung injury from COVID. So again, not sure if it was a reflection of the degree of lung injury or of COVID itself. Just for the for all of us education, what kind of levels you mentioned high D dimer levels, high IL six. So can you recount of some number like beyond this D dimer, you're worrying about uh, some COVID uh, induced thromboembolic or IL six level beyond a particular number? Just if you if you're able to recount it. So for for D dimer so far, the highest I've seen in COVID patient in a COVID patient was over a hundred thousand. Oh boy, that's a lot. Wow. Yeah. And normally in critical illness, just for the listeners to have a good illustration, normally in critical illness is like 2000. Um, and below, below um, 200, it's, it's normal. Like patients would not have, unlikely to have any, any blood clots in the vessels. <clears throat> IL-6, any numbers? In particular, you I don't recall any of our IL-6 numbers to be like super, super high. CRPs, CRPs we've seen like in the 300s. Wow. Yeah. 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 A question IL-6, because... I don't remember by heart. I'm really sorry. I should, I no, should no, have no, looked into fine. it. <laughs> no, that's fine. We hear a lot now and read about the anxiety. Uh, much more... Uh, in the relatives, the patient's relatives, then the patient was intubated. I'm sure the patient also is going through it. There's a lot of, you mentioned about Zoom and remote communication. How effective has that been? How are you setting up on a regular schedule? Or the patients know, or the relatives know to call on a particular schedule? Or how, how is it being done in the ICU situations? That's an excellent question. So what we are doing is the healthcare team has been talking to to family members on a daily, sometimes twice a day basis. Everything that happens, we have been updating them over the phone. And we have always, every time we call, we offer them to see if they wanna do a Zoom call and things like that. For our patients who are awake and just in the ICU on non-invasive, they have been calling their relatives like FaceTime and things like that. And uh, for patients who are sicker, intubated, not able to interact much, we usually ask family members to call into Zoom and just and just talk to them, update them about the family, and because that's something that we would do normally for our uh, mechanically ventilated patients. We would ask any visitors to just talk to them as if they could listen. And I also think, Dr. Ghosh, that is important to acknowledge that among us, among healthcare workers, among clinicians, among physicians, NPPAs, nurses, respiratory therapists. It's a new disease. This is a, we're talking about a five-month-old virus. It's okay to be scared. 
Um, it's new. It's it's unknown. Every week we learn something new about this virus. Yeah. Every time one of our colleagues who already saw more than we did publish something, it's amazing because they were like, "Oh yeah, this makes sense. We saw this last month." So I just I just want to make sure that we all take care of each other, and it, and it's okay to be nervous. It's okay to be anxious, and for the family members also, it's totally new virus. It's okay to be to be anxious, but in the ICU we're doing we're doing all we can, and your family members are never alone. I promise you that they're never alone. And uh, we talk to them and we treat them as if they were our family members. So what you're saying is you're not only really supporting the family members, but also your team members, because this is such an evolving disease and that's an important way of sustaining and having some kind of a feedback session and just sitting down and supporting each other. That's, that's great. So what I'm thinking is that it's too early to say the, how the post-COVID-19 world will look like, but I'm, I'm thinking that your field of critical care has changed, has changed. Everything has changed. So uh, how are you going to devise a curriculum? Are you going to prepare your fellows and residents for how to deal with pandemics? Would there be more people signing up for critical care fellowship? You've already started in the medical school and residency curriculum for telehealth because that is what has come to forefront. But from the critical care unit, what are the things that you think that we should have had or we should have even been prepared before this had happened? If this were to be happening later, God forbid, no, we'll be very prepared. That's a fabulous question. So I'm going to answer in parts. So what have we done so far? So like you said, there is a medical school curriculum. There's an internal medicine curriculum. We're developing a curriculum for our pulmonary critical care, critical care anesthesia, critical care medicine fellowships. What I think was important is that our trainees here at Mayo stepped up to the plate like that made like, in a way that I never thought possible and in a way that made me very proud as, proud as an educator. Our fellows wanted to see these patients. Our fellows wanted to be part of it. And I think seeing things happening is a very powerful way of learning. Also seeing how your teachers deal with all of these things is a powerful way of running. I'm very proud of our ICU team. We all held everything together as best as we could. And, and, I, and I think we made the institution very proud. I think critical care made the institution very proud. Another thing that's very important that you mentioned, telehealth. Dr. Capels is our tele-ICU director. And he made this credentialing for us to help in New York a two-day process, and we were able to help on a volunteer basis. We were able to help our New York colleagues, and we had our fellows also there as, as an elective. So I think that that was a great way of learning. Also, we learning as we went. We are used to do telehealth in the ICU here in our Methodist campus. We help Mayo Clinic Health Systems. We help other institutions around the country. But this two-day processing new electronic medical record, having learners with us was very new. And the learners so far told us that it was a great opportunity because I believe ICU telehealth is, is something that is here to stay and probably grow. And um, another thing that um, our program director, Darlene Nelson, and also Mayo Clinic, MSGME, we were able to send a couple of fellows who wanted to go personally to help in New York as an elective. So we're very proud of that too. And then what should we do next to be prepared for a pandemic? 
I'm not sure I have the answer to that because I don't think I don't think you can be prepared for a pandemic, especially with a new virus. I think from now on, if COVID, if we got COVID down. I think from now on is like PPE, test a lot of people, make sure you're wearing your mask and um, wash your hands, don't touch your face. And I think for COVID, but I think if SARS COVID 2020, 41 comes back i think i think we'll be ready I, mask early stop non-essential things early and go from there well once a, a huge thank you from all of us for the electronic icu uh which you you probably can put an icu in every every hospital maybe that's a possibility of helping each other that's an amazing amazing thing my last question would be something that you've already talked about is all the research which is going on in COVID and ICU situation um, with the ventilator management, new forms of ventilation, prone ventilations is not new, but you're doing it, the PPE <laughs> management um, and plasma infusion and many other things. What is Mayo doing in the critical care as far as uh, enrolling patients for research and doing new forms of treatment? I think at every level, there is something, some research element. We can look at it, the quality approach or therapy approach, diagnosis approach. There's so many things that this new disease has brought us. Two things that I would like to talk about. In critical care, at least historically, a lot of drugs initially were studied with a huge hype that ended up not being so effective. A big example is Zygris in the uh, late 90s that people thought it was gonna cure sepsis. And actually in later analysis, it actually showed that patients were actually more, having more blood clots and dying more of the ones who received cigars. But in critical care, what has been shown time and time again, that best supportive care is where we, we win the diseases. So what does that mean? In critical care is a very, a very known bundle, A, B, C, D, E, F bundle, meaning make them wake up from sedation every day, make sure that they try to breathe on their own, even if they are on mechanical ventilation every day, prevent delirium, prevent blood clots, prevent stress ulcers in the stomach, prevention, prevention, and early mobility. As soon as they can move, make them move. So those were the things that time and time again has been proven to improve outcomes in critical care. Now the new trials, the new drugs. I believe research should be done on a daily basis, no matter what. That's how we got penicillin, and that's how we, we, we are on today's medicine. What we have here at May, we have several really cool clinical trials happening, and our colleagues in infectious disease are leading those efforts. So we have remdesivir as a trial. We have steroids, like I mentioned, as a trial. We have um, an anti-IL-6 trial, so tocilizumab. We have um, a hydroxychloroquine trial for um, mild forms of the disease that is being led by our colleague neighbors in the University of Minnesota. We are participating on that one. I think what you're emphasizing, Dr. Gallo, is something very important, which is not stressed. Is that the supportive care, the ABCD and, and all the other alphabets that you mentioned, is very important for giving the patient a chance for these medicines to work. Yes. Because none of these medicines that we have mentioned, they are going to just make the patient wake up the next morning 
and you will be able to extubate them. They will have to take time to work. And yeah. even then, uh, their effectivity may be 10%, 20%, 30%. It's like none of these are 100%. But the supportive yeah. care with these medicines or without these medicines will keep the patient going uh, as long as it can, because we don't know whether these medicines are working or not. Uh, we fail to tell the patients and the relatives how important this is because they keep asking, are you giving this new medicine? Are you giving this new medicine? Yeah. But one of the biggest medicine you're doing is this supportive care. I wish you had a better term for it and made it into a fancy name saying, Me too. And all that. Because I think that is very underemphasized. And I think the crisis which we are seeing all over may be a role because the hospitals are getting overwhelmed. The personals are getting overwhelmed by patients who are coming in. As much as we want to support it, it becomes sometimes difficult for the hospitals. And Dr. Gosh, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it's very important also. One point of COVID that I mentioned earlier, patients who need mechanical ventilation are staying longer on it. So I believe also what is putting a lot of strain in hospitals in January is regular pneumonias. Even H1N1, who is a very severe disease that comes every winter, flu that comes every winter, patients come off of the ventilator fairly quickly. In COVID, we're seeing days, days, sometimes weeks. And that also is what putting strain on, on healthcare because, again, something that usually takes five days for patients to come off a ventilator is now 10. So I, the turnover has not been as quick as, as with other pulmonary diseases. So I think that that's part also of what's putting strain on, on the healthcare world. Now, let me ask you a very tough question. <laughs> You're a critical care person, and if you were to explain to a layperson what one day of a patient being in critical care, as far as resources concerned, nursing is concerned, people are concerned, involves compared to a patient in a regular ward who's there, is sick, I mean, pretty much sick, otherwise you won't get in the hospital, but compared to that, what one day, the resource-wise, is it five times more a regular ward, 10 times more a regular ward, 20 times more a regular ward because there's so many nursing, so many blood draws, so many monitoring, so many changes of posture so that you don't get bed sores uh, and physical therapy. And now you have this PPE management, remote monitoring. It seems like a, a huge amount of work for one single day in ICU. Uh, you're absolutely correct. It's a lot of work. And one thing that, that you forgot to mention is also all the tubes and drains that go in that the like Foley's and, and sometimes chest tubes and sometimes central lines and, and um, dialysis machines. So I would say that it's a guesstimate, but I would say from a floor patient to an ICU patient, I would say it's probably 50% more resources, um, if not 60, because it's extra, it's extra physicians, extra advanced practice providers, extra trainees, extra nurses, some of our COVID patients have two nurses just for them. Uh, when a regular critical care patient, for example, can have one-to-one -one nurse or maybe one nurse for two patients if they are more on the recovery phase. And nurses on the floor is probably one to five, one to eight, if I'm not mistaken. So nursing alone is probably 100% more. Wow. Hats off. You are the real superheroes, the, the Batman or Batwoman. And, and the real keepers, and you're, you're keeping families alive, 
I know we are not winning all the battles, we are losing some, but for your effort, it would have been far worse. Um, you, mentioned, you mentioned we are heroes. Uh, an intensivist was, this is what we go for, in, to critical care for. So for us, is a, I'm pretty sure I can say us, I don't have to say just I, this is a privilege. It's a privilege to be an intensivist at this time and help patients and their families get through this disease that again, so unknown. And I would like to thank you for the opportunity to be able to talk about this. And I honestly believe that we've got this and we're gonna come out of this way better than when we started. And I also believe that we need to learn from this so we don't make the same mistakes in a year from now. Thank you, Dr. Gallo. I've always uh, thought about our critical care colleagues like firemen and women. People are running away from the house when there is fire. And these are people who wear their own PPE and they're jumping in the fire. Yeah. And you seem to love the fire. And that's who we you do. are. And thank you, thank you for everything that you're doing. So we are at the end of the show. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, and see you back next week.